This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is uh, Dr. Casey Hammond. Hey, Casey, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. Eric, how are you doing there today? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, we're, uh, we're, here to, to, we're here to talk turkey about um, a lot of things. Among them, uh, uh, a presentation you gave us on PCR U.S. competition over 5G networks and Malaysia's Choice. Um, so yeah, again, welcome to DeKalb. Thank you very much. It's a w- delightful to be here. <laughs> Reese, we had Casey to the uh, Museum of Barbed Wire. Uh, and uh, yeah, this, uh, this, this so many untold, uh, you'll, you'll tell the tales far and wide of the, uh, <laughs> of the NIU experience. <laughs> yeah, there's much more to see here than, uh, than you can certainly do in a short amount of time. Um, Dr. Dr. Hammond is a, he's a uh, currently a visiting lecturer at the University uh, Sultan Zainal Abidin um, in our fair Malaysia, um, and uh, boy, it's been too long since I've been back to Malaysia. I, it's really one of my favorite places. The food there is. It's waiting for you to come back. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll keep me a keep me a spot in Johor Bahru. I'll be uh, I'll be I'll do be careful what you wish. I'll for. make all the restaurant <laughs> reservations. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> Um, yeah, if anyone knows what we're talking about, Malaysia is a, a foodie paradise. Uh, Indian, Chinese, uh, Southeast Asian, it's awesome. Uh, well, but the, 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 as much as we'd like to talk about that task at hand, um, really interesting and, and controversial uh, uh, issue over technology, and in particular, um, 5G. Uh, tell us about, Casey, the, the context for the 5G debate between China and the United States? Yeah, the 5G debate between China and the United States is making a lot of headlines these last couple of years, um, especially since Trump began to ban Huawei from the United States. But this competition over 5G networks between China and the United States, I think it has to be put into the larger context of an ongoing rivalry between these two global powers. And um, so I think one of the uh, some of the context in in which we should place the 5G rivalry, it fits in there with the rivalry between the U.S. and China over um, Asia Pacific trade agreements, um, global infrastructure strategies, and um, and more recently COVID policy and vaccine development. Uh, the the uh, and we'll we'll talk we'll delve a lot more into what what five G is and how it how it functions but it's part of it's it's a it's 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 a piece to a larger puzzle of sort of uh, I don't want to say for trade dominance but 
that it, part of that is, or, or trade uh, um, superiority. It's even more than trade um, superiority or trade dominance because 5G is going to change so much about the way we live, the way societies are organized, the way economies are run. Um, so it's, it's much bigger, I think, than, say, like, um, okay. a, a pandemic or, yeah. uh, or physical infrastructure projects. Right. This is an ongoing sort of structural kind of change that will uh, affect us. Maybe let's give our listeners a bit of um, the, the, you mentioned the, the Asia Pacific trade agreements. Um, I'm thinking about the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which uh, sort of is in, unfortunately in the dustbin of history, <laughs> I think. Um, but maybe say a word about, maybe in short, briefly what it is, but maybe what hopes were pinned on the Trans-Pacific Partnership as it relates to this and other kinds of technology. Yeah, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it actually began um, earlier than uh, President Obama's involvement in 2012. It was a few years earlier. It was um, Singapore was involved in it, New Zealand and Chile. And, um, and, and Obama sort of jumped on this and made it into something right. bigger. Around 2012, when he developed the Pivot to Asia policy, this was sort of his signature Asian policy was to um, develop this uh, uh, free trade agreement with Asia Pacific powers that would integrate those Asia Pacific economies with that of the United States and link them up to U.S. growth and stimulate U.S. growth as well. And it was meant to um, offset the growing economic power of China in that region. Um, so he wanted China to be excluded from the TPP, and the way of excluding China was by um, imposing commitments on all of the members that were commitments that China couldn't possibly uh, respect, such as limiting the um, involvement of state-owned enterprises. Right. Or, or like, and, and another that you mentioned was, was open internet, right, is another well, one that would... Having a free and open internet. Yeah. Right, and, and so, so, so there were kind of... Uh, triggers in place that would that would was that hardwired in at the beginning like let's make this impossible to follow or or i mean obviously they're not going to say that like in the um (laughs) no i guess they aren't going to say that explicitly or at least those explicit words aren't going to come out of president obama's mouth but it was hardwired in there into the beginning it was a way of how can we compete with china's growing influence economic influence in that region okay um and so how can we give the United States an advantage? How tie those countries to U.S. trade with, through certain governance uh, measures that China wouldn't be able to respect. Okay, okay, and and so part and part of that influence is the uh, kind of infamous uh, a Belt and Road Initiative. Um, one Belt, One Road. Maybe, maybe again, in a, in a nutshell, what what is the One Belt, One Road? Yeah, well, some people have compared the Belt and Road Initiative to the Marshall Plan. You know, China's, okay. China's plan to invest very heavily in, um, uh, in, other, in building infrastructure in other countries, and it's an infrastructure that will link their economies back to China. It's a way of stimulating China's growth. China, uh, when it uh, began the Belt and Road Initiative um, in 2015, it had reached sort of a, an economic juncture where um, they had um, developed overcapacity 
for physical infrastructure, that for 20 years China had been building a lot of its infrastructure. Now it had capacity to build infrastructure and it wanted to export that capacity, and they thought they would do it to some of the um, developing areas that needed infrastructure very badly. And, and I guess, and, and like the Marshall Plan, the idea is this will, this in perpetuity, or at least for this will um, tie the, the kind of mutual common interests of, of in, in the Marshall Plan, you, Europe and, and the United States on a sort of a common footing going forward. And the hope that the, for the Belt Road is that, that this will also um, align uh, the, 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 the countries that, that, that are receiving a lot of aid with sort of Chinese um, global ambitions. Is that, is that right? Yeah, a- absolutely. This, and this is a, a long-term vision of tying these countries more closely to China. Just one example is China's developed the capacity for developing high-speed railways, and now it wants to export that. It's already built these railways at home. It's exporting it, and one good, really good example is the high-speed railway that's being built from China through Laos, through Thailand, Intended right. to go through Malaysia, intended to go all the way to Singapore, so that Singapore will be linked to China by train. You could take a train from Shanghai. High-speed train. From yeah. A high-speed train yeah. from Shanghai or Beijing to Singapore. Right. Currently, you could take a very low-speed train, <laughs> <laughs> series of trains, <laughs> somehow. Like, I'm trying to think about what that journey would be. Oh, and the slowest part <laughs> is getting from Singapore to Malaysia. hey oh. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, exactly. Been there, done that. Um, so the so this makes um, does this make this makes China the, the it has it has money and influence to give um, and it by by what order of magnitude does this outstrip sort of current sort of uh, American spending? It's 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 a lot. Oh, right? uh, the, absolutely, you can't even make a comparison. Um, yeah, ch- China, but see that that's the thing. The U.S. has a market-driven economy. China, the state can um, sponsor these projects. And the the Chinese state is willing to spend extraordinary amounts of money to develop these projects to increase the country's uh, influence. And uh, and another factor you mentioned at the beginning is that uh, the relationship of of COVID policy to... um, to Chinese U.S. Um, PRC competitiveness, how does how to? I mean, that's a you know obviously the question always, but um, it's it's part of this complicated puzzle right now. Yeah, you know, it's very unfortunate that the pandemic happened after the rivalry between the U.S. and China had already begun. Otherwise, I think if this pandemic had been you know, f- even five years ago, there probably would have been more U.S.-China cooperation on a global level. But because the pandemic happened at such a time following, you know, Trump's imposition of, of, of bans on Huawei, that immediately a global pandemic became a matter of competition between the U.S. and China. Which side is going to develop the most effective vaccine at the earliest date? Which side is going to make that vaccine available to other countries and practice vaccine diplomacy that way? And, and maybe for those who don't know, we've we've, ta- we've said Huawei a couple times. What what was the U.S. argument about uh, what it didn't like about Huawei? What it doesn't like about Huawei. Huawei is the world's largest manufacturer of five uh, G uh, network equipment, and it sells that equipment as a monolithic block that can't be disaggregated. So. Say like a, a telecom provider, like let's say Verizon in the United States, if they wanted to build a 5G system, 
the, with Huawei. With Huawei, they they have very few choices besides Huawei. The the only other really effective choice would be Ericsson to a smaller extent, Nokia, and Samsung. Um, but Huawei is by far the largest, and the Huawei equipment has the capacity. It's not to say that Huawei is actually doing this, but it has the capacity to collect data from that network. Um, and so it was felt that uh, having Huawei... This would be shared it would back home, be, yeah. We shared back home. In 2017, the security law that was passed in China obligates all Chinese entities to share information with the Chinese state if they're asked to do so. Okay, so this is and this for national security concerns. This was this was enough to say like that that Huawei as a platform is not acceptable because of that, right? Um, and one of the reasons we've gotten to this point is you know the United States used to be able to uh, used to have um, companies that were major manufacturers of network equipment like AT and T. Um, but what happened is in the 1990s, the Americans and the Europeans dominated network equipment, and um, and China opened up as an export platform. Because labor costs were so low in China, the United States manufacturers were compelled to go to China in order to compete with the Europeans who were there. Okay. Now, when the Americans and the Europeans went there, they had to share the technology with the Chinese, and the Chinese also stole some of the technology. And the Chinese ended up becoming, through state subsidies, producing reasonably good network equipment at a price that Americans and Europeans can't compete with. So most of the manufacturers were driven out. So now we have this oligopoly that's dominated by Huawei and secondarily Ericsson. Okay, yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good um, background. Um, you know, and, and, you know, another sort of uh, policy difference between sort of the U.S. approach, the, the TPP would be sort of, prototypical of that is sort of multilateralism, like working with um, uh, a, co a complex of, of various countries at the same time, sort of a, to a, to a, a, a you know, a EU, uh, ASEAN, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what the, the, the People's Republic of China prefers um, bilateralism over multilateralism. Why does it? Yeah, it's really interesting because President Xi Jinping um, talks up multilateralism a lot, like when he goes to places like Davos. And he was able to be somewhat convincing about that a few years ago when uh, Donald Trump was president of the United States and adopted that America first um, okay. policy. But if you So actually, China could fill the sort of the multilateralism void? China yeah. could fill the multilateralism okay. void. But I think a really good example of like when push comes to shove... Um, China is dealing with a number of Southeast Asian countries for some years now on South China Sea disputes. This involves the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia. Um, and China insists on resolving or attempting to resolve all South China Sea disputes with, on a bilateral basis. China will deal with Malaysia on a bilateral basis, with the Philippines on a bilateral basis, and so on, because uh, it's, it's much easier for China to win these arguments because it, it's just so much larger and more powerful than any other single partner that it would come into the, this um, negotiation okay. with. Right. And so, so in, in, a, in a bilateral, in, in any bilateral arrangement, uh, China, will, China will, um, will be able to dominate that arrange that relationship uh, is where in a multilateral it, it's it would be less clear. It would be less clear. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that China, given a preference, would choose um, 
when, when Chinese strategic interests are at stake, it will always choose bilateral uh, relations over multilateral ones. So let's get to some of the some of the heat of the meat uh, over five G. Um, what are the what are some of the capabilities uh, and sort of architecture of five G? Sort of like what what is the big deal? Like give us sort of the 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 show pony. Uh, why should we care about five G? What will it do for us? Right. Well, we have to talk about the five G capabilities before we can talk about what's new with the architecture. 5G is going to be something completely different that we haven't had before. 5G just means the fifth generation of digital communications architecture. And, um, and what's going on with 5G is up until now, uh, those digital communications have largely been person-to-person or a person-to-a-device. But with 5G, for the first time, you're going to have device-to-device communications, which means you're going to have billions of sensors commu- in, in billions of devices communicating with each other. And all of that data that's transferred between the two of them is going to be fed into artificial intelligence. And that uh, artificial intelligence is then going to... Um, uh, uh, you know, create even more effective um, forms of machine learning and robotics and so forth. Um, so 5G... So machines will be talking to machines. Machines will be talking to machines. And this is the so-called Internet of Things. Um, and and so it's it, we're going... This is going to be transformative for the way our economy is organized, the way our society is organized... And 5G also, because of its high speed, is going to be able to put into practice certain forms of critical communications that are virtually instantaneous so that for the first time, remote surgery will be possible where you know a split second is, it can make the difference between life and death. The same thing where that split second makes all the difference would be, say, autonomous vehicles or, or smart grids in cities. I, <laughs> my distracted mind, but ever since you've talked about sort of machines talking to machines, I, like you've, are you familiar with the plot of Terminator? <laughs> this is, this is very Skynet becoming self-aware, right? This is the, uh, this is, I mean, but it's, I'm sort of joking here, but it, uh, but the, the, uh, these, these driverless cars, um, synchronized kinds of things that, that, are, that require, um, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to tell someone that like, you know, driverless cars are only going to be possible. The cars have to start talking to each other. It's not enough for your car to steer itself on the road. It needs to know all the other cars around it. It has to know all the other cars around it and where they are and which direction they're moving. Right. So, you know, it's it's possible that a automated or an autonomous vehicle could become um, better driven than a human-driven vehicle. Um, so they might become... It's almost be- sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. so the yeah. cars will probably become better drivers than we are. I think, you know, in terms of um, remote surgery, like robotics are going to become better surgeons than human surgeons. But the, the real question is, are machines going to become smarter than human beings? I think machines are going to become more skillful than human beings, but are they going to become smarter than human beings? So it's a so it's it sounds like a in, of any of the generations of, of 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 the G's one through five like this seems like this is the biggest jump are we right is this oh ab- absolutely from the first generation to the second to the third to the fourth these were gradual improvements in digital communications but they there there was nothing transformative about them they were just gradual improvements five G is going to change everything. 
like for example, machines talking to machines. Yeah, that's not happened before. You and maybe this goes back to the um, architecture question, and but sort of this problem problem that uh, you know people have raised. Will will five G create a, a digital divide? And I guess maybe that sort of the urban, rural, other architecture issues might speak to that. How does a- that work? Absolutely, because already through. Throughout the whole world, we see growing economic disparities that are aggravated by the the digital economy and the haves and the have-nots in the digital economies, having having access or not having access, having better access or having weaker access. This is going to be aggravated by 5G because 5G operates on much higher frequencies than, say, 3G and 4G. Um, now, those much higher frequencies, in order for them to be effective because they travel shorter distances and they're easily interrupted within those short distances, it's going to have to be a very, very dense network for 5G to be effective. And the only and it's also going to be very expensive to install it. So the only places that are going to be able to afford that, at least in the near term, will be the cities. And so okay. rural dwellers are, will be left out of 5G networks uh, unless there are certain state interventions. Yeah, you uh, even in uh, even at uh, our precious NIU, you have to drive a few miles towards Chicago before your phone flips to five G. We're we're still <laughs> slightly outside of the uh, of that. Yeah, you get even uh, yeah even even at the at st- we're still in Chicagoland, but we're we're even on the margins of the of the five G. And uh, yeah, that's uh, and and in places that are much more. Uh, in the in the uh, middle of nowhere, I, well, ab- absolutely. Because yeah. even in a wealthy country like the United States, when you go out to um, less populated parts of the country, say you know, like like Utah or Wyoming or Montana, yeah, um, it's it's going to be more difficult to install five G out in those less populated places. Sometimes you have no service in, in many many parts, <laughs> let alone no five uh, G. Um, the the uh, in t- in thinking about again the U.S. China kind of sort of competition, um, the uh, and then and then sort of Southeast Asia, Malaysia's role in this. Uh, the it's kind of interesting the concept of a of a digital China, um, and uh, maybe speak to that. What is uh, what is meant by sort of China's self uh, self conception of, of of a digital China? Yeah, um, this has been a vision of Xi Jinping's for. Uh, probably at least 20 years. I think he first uh, developed the concept when he was in Fujian province of having a informatized society, a smart society. Um, and, and so he, he's emphasized the importance of China being able not just to keep up with digital uh, advances in the world, but really to be leading the way um, okay. And 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 putting enormous state resources, subsidies into research and development, so that China's investments in research and development for five G uh, are e- extraordinarily large. There's there's really no one else in the world that competes with them at that level. Yeah, and uh, you know one of the one of the it's always fascinated me that uh, you know the the critique of say sort of uh, authoritarian governments regimes is that well. These things are inherently corrupt, and they're gonna they're gonna eventually you know crumble into their own weight. But if you have if you have a sort of a, a strong centralized state that is that's also that's focused and not you know a kleptocracy like it can do serious it can do major make these major investments like China. And so it's we're seeing kind of the uh, 
you know, like China is able to grow its own uh, wealth and, and, and uh, you know, there's maybe not a person in China who is not better off than their grandparents were or, you know, uh, standard of living. It's no, a- ab- absolutely, absolutely. 5G is going to in, in, improve, I think, in every country that has access to 5G, it's going to improve the 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 means of governance of that country. Now, the means of governance from country to country is different. Um, you know, China is labeled as a surveillance state. Um, but I, I, I think um, with, with that in mind, I think that um, the, what China wants to be, China does not want to be like the United States. I think if there's any place in the world that China wants to be like, China wants to be like Singapore. And I think that Singapore has been a model for China since the time of, of, of Deng Xiaoping that he saw this as a Chinese society that was ruled by the same party unchallenged over a long period of time and had very effective government and very efficient economy and was raising people's standards of living. And the people were essentially depoliticized because they were happy with what the state was providing for them. Yeah. And that's the, and that's the, the sort of the, and that's the argument, I guess, from the, from the Chinese case is that like, you know, they're, they're look at the look at the fruits like the the, um, and you know the Americans say, well, dissent is quelled. Well, that that is partially true, but also you know, that it's it's not like there's uh, widespread mass unrest in in China over um, even covert over over the for the for the mainstream, and so it's able to um, kind of for the for the time being um, able to 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 sell this vision to its own um, populace. Uh, but, but you know, with a critique of sort of a surveillance um, state, but it always struck me that like maybe um, maybe the one difference between the U.S. and China is if you think of uh, you know the the kind of the the revel the sort of Edward Snowden revelations about is that China doesn't pretend that it doesn't monitor every single thing. The U.S. just <laughs> <laughs> pretends it doesn't, and. So, so that is, I mean, is that is that a fair critique? It is a fair critique, um, but I think we we also have to um, look at it carefully. Um, yes, okay, the United States, you know, as as Snowden has revealed, spies even on its best friends. It spies on Australia. It spies on Germany. Yeah, but do Germany and Australia really have anything to be afraid of? Um, uh, that, that, I mean, I think that's a question that has to be asked. How much of a threat is the United States to its close allies? Um, now, you know, China in this case, you know, say like if China puts in 5G networks in Southeast Asia and say like right now they're uh, building a 5G network in Indonesia. <laughs> um, Indonesia wants that 5G and it wants it quickly and it wants it cheap and nobody else can help but get that 5G network right. quickly and cheaply except for China. Now it's a trade-off. China has will have the capacity to um, to have access to Indonesia's big data and um, and I suppose anything else that goes on in those networks conceivably China could have it. Now um, you know China has ambitions to. Um, be dominant in that region. Uh, and so it's up to the Indonesians, really, to answer that question. Um, is, uh, you know, Chinese access to its big data threatening or not? It, you you laid out, um, now thinking about turning to Southeast Asia, um, 
the, the sort of the 5G is an interesting um, kind of uh, uh, carrot held out uh, because it's because it's so desirable, it's so valuable, and China's really the only uh, the only one with the, the deep pockets to be able to say sort of like we'll we'll do it. Um, uh, give us a sense uh, of in Southeast Asia, like how is it? Which countries have have said like yeah, we're on board for the Chinese 5G and which, which countries have, have opted out? Well, of the 10 ASEAN nations, um, seven of them are using or planning on using uh, Huawei equipment. So majority, clear majority. Ma- clear majority. Yeah. The, the exceptions are Singapore and Vietnam, which have not explicitly outruled using Huawei equipment, but they are not using it, and they've been making excuses for not using it, so it looks like they don't want to use it. Now, the really interesting country in the region is Malaysia, because Malaysia has had um, an unusually close state-to-state relations with the People's Republic of China since the 1980s. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in Mahathir, as the prime minister of Malaysia in the 1980s, you could say that he drew the attention of uh, the PRC in a favorable way because Mahathir was quite critical of the West. And, um, yeah. and, and, uh, and so in this way, he was, you know, what would you say? He had a sympathetic ear in China. Um, and also, you know, Mahathir was anxious about developing the... Uh, Malaysian economy. And China for a good 25 years now has been a very stimulating uh, trade partner for Malaysia. Now, what, what's interesting What's interesting here is that Mahathir was out of office for a few years and he came back into office in 2018 after the Malaysian people had become heavily disillusioned with the corruption of the ruling party that had been in place for oh more than fifty years, and Najib scandals didn't help. The yet. Najib scandals, the MDB one, yeah, um, and China was involved in that because it sure looked like China was uh, um, uh, trying to help Najib uh, resolve the crisis that he had created himself. <laughs> um, now, Mahathir in twenty eighteen is uh, elected brought back into power by criticizing Najib's relationship with China. And yeah, he comes back kind of guns blazing. Well, not, I mean, but, but, and even, you know, the sort of uh, new colonialism. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, after he was, uh, um, uh, became prime minister again, and one of the first things he did was he made a trip to China and he was critical of the uh, China, certain Chinese practices very openly to his Chinese hosts, um, who weren't accustomed to hearing Mahathir speak in this way. Um, right, this was a different, um, of course, who would have thought we'd have saw Anwar and Mahathir <laughs> apart together, probably, you know, anything is possible. Uh, but but um, one thing that was sort of like, um, uh, you know, kind of stunning about uh, this kind of different face of Mahathir in the, in the beginning of his return was uh, I guess for our, give our listeners a sense of when China was not happy when uh, Mahathir mentioned sort of unequal treaties, you know, mentioning sort of that Malaysia had with 
China. Why, why was why did that be? Why would that be so triggering for China? Right, because the, he was using China's rhetoric against itself. China has this rhetoric about the um, the um, unfair treatment that it suffered for a hundred years at the hands of the West in terms of the West imposing unequal treaties. On Never forget China. national humiliation. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And and Mahathir began to talk about unequal treaties. He was talking about the uh, agreements that Najib had made with the with China, and that China had a strong upper hand. Najib needed to be bailed out, and China was willing to bail him out. And so he was referring to those as unequal treaties. China knew exactly what he meant by that. Do you, Do you think that um, that that uh, was this a was this a way to kind of distance uh you know his vision from Najib's by by th- throwing kind of everything that that you know that had the the, the quote-unquote stench on it under the bus is this was that part of the strategy of distancing um I I I think absolutely because because the majority of Malaysian people themselves became disillusioned with their country's relationship with China under Najib and Mahathir to win the goodwill of the people right. had to had to take their side in this. Uh, um, but uh, but you know, as you point out, that um, that's not the end of the story because uh, then we see a um, uh, is it Maxis the Malaysian telecom uh, kind of behemoth? Um, it uh, it strikes a deal with. With Huawei, that's right. Maxis is one of the largest um, uh, network providers in Malaysia. It would be like the Malaysian T-Mobile or Verizon. After Maxis signed that agreement with Huawei in 2019, in 2021, just last year, the Malaysian government, through the Ministry of Communications and Multimedia, it has a um, a state agency that's called Cybersecurity Malaysia. Cybersecurity Malaysia signed an agreement with Huawei to collaborate on doing um, research and development uh, on cybersecurity. Uh, Malaysia thought that Huawei could help uh, this agency become one of the foremost uh, in in capability in this area in, in Southeast Asia. So we see between... Mahathir comes back into power in uh, 2018. Throughout, from 2019 through 2021, we see Mahathir moving back more closely to China. Um, and it, so it looked very much as if Malaysia would reach out to Huawei to help build its 5G infrastructure. So the big surprise was that in the middle of 2021 that Malaysia chose Ericsson over mm. Huawei to build its 5G network. Would would they be the are they the number 2 number provider? Two. Yeah. Number 2. Yeah, a, a few minutes ago Eric you you um, made reference to how hard it is to understand what exactly is going on in Malaysian politics because it's it's full of surprises. Um, and this is certainly one of them. Nobody uh, who's an outsider anyway, uh, ever would have expected Malaysia to choose Ericsson after for two years listening to Mahathir cozy up to yeah. Huawei. What, what, uh, what's the best guess? Why? One guess 
is that um, Malaysia tries to strike a balance between China and the United States. And the United States has been increasingly effective in convincing its allies, anyway, to um, be cautious about Huawei. Now, Malaysia's not a U.S. ally. The United States doesn't have any sort of security uh, or right. mutual defense right. treaty. Not like Singapore with or, or Singapore, yeah. or Thailand, yeah. or Philippines. Yeah. Malaysia doesn't have that. But Malaysia still wants to maintain a good relationship with the United States because the United States is, I mean, it's, you know, China's a very powerful friend to have, but, you know, that powerful friend could have a pretty heavy hand. And so it's nice to have another powerful friend to sort of balance that out. It, stri- it strikes me that, you know, Mahathir, for all his, you know, good and bad, like that is trying, it, it's similar to a sort of non-aligned uh, sort of Sukarno or, you know, a path to trying to navigate between these uh, uh, other great powers, right? I mean, that seems like, uh, which is n- not the worst strategy, I guess. No, not at all. Um, I, I would say that Mahathir, you know, he, he does try to be non-aligned, but, he's, but he definitely has an Asian identity. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, see, this would be a difference from Japan. I think you know, Japan, in some ways, has a Western identity. Um, yeah, okay, uh, true. Uh, that, that, so he's... Mahathir's trying to be neutral here, but he's definitely uh, identified. Sort of the Asian as, he way. De- definitely yeah. identifies with the Asian way. So one point is that Mahathir is trying to strike a balance between China and the United States, and the United States has been increasingly effective in convincing its allies to be cautious about Huawei. Malaysia is not a U.S. ally, um, but maybe Malaysia began to have second thoughts about the. Uh, potential for interference in its domestic affairs if it had a Huawei-installed 5G network. The other thing to keep in mind is Malaysia's close relationship with Singapore. Um, And Singapore has effectively excluded Huawei from its 5G network, and Singapore is working with Ericsson. Perhaps that's a factor and and Singapore is sort of as a you know as it's it's its wealth and its size make it it's po- it it's possible to ignore Huawei and it, it could it could it could do this it could build this infrastructure um, without Chinese assistance and it has right it it has uh, I think because Singapore well yeah Singapore can probably afford the Ericsson prices over the Huawei prices now this comes down to pricing. The question is, what kind of deal did Ericsson offer Malaysia? That's the, you know, I was exactly thinking like what what would hap- what happened behind the scenes with maybe U.S. or allies support saying like, let's sweeten this deal so that they take the the Ericsson or, you know, you have to wonder. I don't think the details have been revealed yet, but we <laughs> do know that Ericsson has offered financing to Malaysia, and that Malaysia found that financing that was being offered by Ericsson attractive enough to go for it rather than Huawei. Now, what does this mean? Why did Malaysia go for Ericsson? Well, one of the things that Malaysia did in 2021 is it set up a new government company um, called Digital Nacional, and this state-owned company is going to build the 5G network for Malaysia. Okay, Previous to the establishment of 
Digital Nacional in 2021, it was the existing Malaysian telecoms who were going to build the network, right. like, so like the, like like the Maxis. Yeah. And, so, and it was, so it would be, would be the analogy like here, you know, Verizon or whoever in the U.S. is like, building 5g capacity but it's in it's on their dime to to to, to build that in and that's built it is where so you're saying malaysia is kind of nationalizing the 5g push yes it, malaysia is creating a government uh body that's going to build the 5g network and then the existing telecoms like maxis and digi will have to lease that equipment from Digital Nacional, the state-owned company. Um, so because Maxis is now going to be a leaser of equipment from the Malaysian state rather than a builder of that equipment in Malaysia, this new arrangement between Digital Nacional and Ericsson automatically voided the agreement that Maxis had with Huawei. I'm wondering just in terms of comparing the deals, uh, you know, sort of the Ericsson, it's this you know, attractive financing that's unclear exactly how that came to be. But in, in, a, in, a, in a Huawei offering, sort of in a typical uh, sort of uh, country that it's dealing with, with China, is, is, it, is it on paper free? Does this cost like, like, or is it minimal cost? Is it like, what is the, or is it a sliding scale depending on how does, like, like in terms of like, I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'm just comparing sort of U.S. aid to to in, in, in the Cold War was, you know, it wasn't you don't necessarily have to pay this back, but you better be our ally. You know, um, what, 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 are, what does that look like that while we deal look like for countries? OK, I'm, I'm just going to make a guess here that um, that because of um, Chinese state subsidies that say in Indonesia right now when they're buying Huawei equipment. I'm not sure if they're paying market price for that Huawei equipment because I think it's so deep discounts. It's deep discount with and an, probably the technical, probably assistance to install. Technical assistance. Yes, Huawei is offering enormous amounts of technical assistance to train up Indonesians in the technology, which is not, which is not insignificant. Like that that deal. You know, it's one thing to have the equipment, but the, to the, to run it like. A absolutely, because I think this is one of the problems in Southeast Asia, in places like Malaysia and Indonesia. Yes, they need 5G networks in order to stimulate their economies. They want these 5G networks, and they want them quickly, and they want them cheaply, and Huawei is able to provide them with that. But what's missing in Malaysia and Indonesia at this point is, what would you say, the sort of the, the um, digitally literate, human talent, that they have enough homegrown talent to develop uh, such uh, right. not technology yet. on yeah. their own. It's not there yet. Yeah. So I think this is one... one we're, as we're Singapore, it is, for sure. In Singapore, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do the... Uh, what's the view of Malaysians of the influence, uh, Chinese influence in general, not just, uh, you know, 5G, but just what, where, where do they stand? And maybe has that changed over time? Well, it's changing... Recently, um, I've, I've come across a couple of um, uh, recent um, uh, pieces of research. Um, one of the important ones, I think, is, is Linda Lim at the University of Michigan, um, who, noted, who studies Singapore. Uh, and she's noticed that in this COVID period, 
that um, Singaporean attitudes toward China have become friendlier and towards the United States have become less friendly. Um, and she's trying to understand what this is all about. Now, I'm not going to speak for her, but she's, she's done the research that shows that this is the trend. I'll speak for myself now and say why this might be going on. I think one is in Singapore, you have a difference between, say, the Singaporean elite that run the state and then ordinary Singaporeans at the popular level. Okay. And the Singaporean state tends to be very pro-Western. Um, the Singaporeans at the sort of at the street level, a lot of them are still Chinese speaking and have Chinese cultural identities and have um, accounts with like Weibo or WeChat, um, and they are reading news from China. And I think that they could be influenced by uh, by the news that they're reading about the United States through the Chinese media. Similarly, in Malaysia, where the ethnic Chinese in Malaysia are even more strongly, where the ethnic Chinese minority in Malaysia has perhaps an even stronger uh, culturally Chinese identity than the ethnic Chinese in Singapore, um, they're all the more tied into uh, Chinese media. As well as a decent degree of political marginalization in Malaysia that, that ethnic Chinese have vis-a-vis -vis their Malay counterparts. Right. So maybe there's a, you know, an, an increase like, well, that's, we're, we're, we're our, our, our identities might be, certainly there's a cultural sort of heritage link. Yeah. But I think what's going on, but then we have to think about, about say, the Malay majority in Malaysia. And, and what is their attitude towards China? And what is their attitude towards the United States? And is it different from that of the Chinese? And I do think that there is um, a, a growing receptiveness, even among the Malays in Malaysia, towards China, and a sort of a growing tension among them with the United States. Um, I think we're reaching a certain point in history where the West has been dominant for so long and the United States as the leader of the West has been dominant for so long. And the United States is beginning to look a little bit weak and a little bit confused. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, might, it might be like, like Britain in like, you know, uh, uh, sort of as the, as the 20th century sort of, you know, they we're, seeing, we're seeing a sort of unquestioned hegemony start to, start to really recede and new players... You know, emerge on the horizon. Uh, you yeah, know, like maybe that's the analogy. I don't know. Well, I'll say this just as at an anecdotal level, um, people I know in Indonesia, in Singapore, in Malaysia, <laughs> um, in the last year or so, they have increasingly asked me what is going on in the United States, <laughs> and this is a country <laughs> that they once admired. <laughs> that they have now begun to see um, and, and, and be, begun to see behave in a way that they hadn't seen it behave before, and it's very disillusioning for them. Yeah. And so I think there's... Yeah, yeah. So I think after a long period of U.S. dominance, the U.S. begins to look like it's losing its way a little bit. It begins to look a little bit weaker. And it's, cer it's certainly not putting the dollars... Towards uh, sort of you know to put body where its mouth is foreign direct assistance it's not happening, and that too, and that too it's 
So it's not being as generous as it used to be. It's looking weaker than it used to be. And so you have some disillusion with it and I think some turning against it. Um, whereas China's, you know, on the ascendant, China's handing out the cash, um, you know, that uh, China was handing out the vaccines. Um, and so right. China wants some goodwill in the region. Um, yeah, no, this is, I mean, this is such a, um, what, what I, what I what this issue is so interesting because, you know, sometimes the, 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 the competition between China and, and the U.S. can, can, Kind of bleed into abstractions, um, and then this is a like some of the to to deal, drill down a little deeper into to a specific thing. I think really like shows some of the. Uh, so do, do you do you feel like is this indicative of other um, contestations between uh, China and the U.S. for economic influence, like the the five G? Uh, well, you know, is it is the so China China is winning in the 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 in ASEAN. You know, is is this uh, one of several indicators that shows that um, you know China is becoming more important than the United States in the region? Well, already the trade statistics show that that every year China becomes a bigger investor in ASEAN. China becomes a more important trade partner with the ASEAN member states. Um, China's economic influence is growing, and um, and and neighbors like Laos are you know like very much even having a political influence in 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 foreign policy even like you know or willingness to speak out or to um right there's uh, there's we see we see um we're seeing a sea change i think i i think so and and southeast asia is becoming all the more important to china as um as the united states and its allies in the last few years have become increasingly cautious uh, about China and increasing, increasingly seeing it as a systemic rival, um, uh, China has to be afraid of um, somewhere, I think, in the back of its mind, it has to be thinking about the possibility of, of sanctions from Western countries. Um, and so if any sanctions like that were imposed, because China is still you know, dependent upon the U.S. and the EU for a lot of its economic activity, um, and if that were to decline, China would have to make up for it in other places. And the most likely place to look for it is Southeast Asia. And if you look at even the trajectory of, uh, of uh, you know, China's influence, like like place like the Philippines, where, um, you know, uh, long and, and intense uh, battle against the Chinese in the courts for sort of maritime boundaries and disputes. And but over the course of that, it finally even wins. But then is, you know, that that. But the world had shifted even in that in even in that time frame. I think for the Philippines to say like, well, that's not as important to us anymore. And so chi- China has uh, uh, maybe that's more about the Duterte regime than. But it, but I think it, it's it's maybe part of uh, a real politique. You know, at look at the you know the way the winds are blowing, and for the Philippines to say like, you know. We we sh- maybe we shouldn't throw our hat entirely in the American ring, uh, and you know I, it's sort of hard to blame at a certain level. I, I agree with you, Eric. I think the Philippines is 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 acting practically in this case, right? Because China made it clear that 
it didn't care about the international ruling coming out of The Hague about the dispute between the Philippines and China. China was going to do what it was going to do, and it was going <laughs> to was ignore the it. Philippines. Yep. And so what is, what is the Philippines going to do? How can the Philippines stand up to China without backing from the rest of the world? And was the rest of the world re- willing to do this? You know, a lot of times I think when, when China behaves in a bullying way, um, I think it displeases a lot of uh, other countries, but other countries are unwilling to stand up to it because China has become an important trade partner of theirs, and they have to maintain a, at least on the surface, an amicable relationship with China to keep the business flowing. Right, and shift in perspective from from those states is that you know this is not in our interest, and many people are saying you know now like why why doesn't uh, why don't more ASEAN countries you know, come to, you know, universal support of, of Ukraine. Or, and I don't think, that it's not like they're choosing sides in this, uh, but they're saying, like, this is the advantage of not being a great power. You don't have to be the world police and stick your nose into every, like, we're, we're just going to sit back, thanks. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, I kind of feel like, well, yeah, that maybe they shouldn't have to take a side because um, that's there's one advantage of not... <laughs> being on the tip of the spear of of you know sort of uh uh of global authority is you 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 don't have to explicitly do that so maybe these states are doing the same no that's that's a good point eric and i think indonesia in this case is a good example of that that um yeah, yeah. indonesia you know in the last one is it since 2014 so about 8 years now under jokowi has been of behaving in in very practical ways um Jokowi looks out, and you know, in some ways, he could say an Indonesia first policy. Um, he doesn't really care, you know. Jokowi um, has, I don't believe, he has any great affinity for China, nor does he have a great affinity for the United States. He just sees them both as powerful countries that could help him get what he needs to make the improvements that he believes are necessary for Indonesia, and he'll go where he's going to get the best deal. Well, um, we've uh, we've uh, used a lot of your time, Casey. We've had a. This has been really interesting. Will you uh, uh, come back and tell us more at a later date? Absolutely, I'd be happy to do that. Okay. Well, um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks again, and uh, you know, listeners, join us for another episode of. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.